I sound different this week, it's because it's going to be a little more freewheeling. I am like, usually we use a microphone stand and I am holding this like kicked back in my chair. Just, just ready to let fly. So here goes nothing. What I'm going to do, and the reason Nate and M are not on is because I'm basically going to give you guys a recap of the commission meeting through my eyes. Let me say that again. What you're going to hear are my opinions and thoughts about what I saw, not anyone else's. Take it with a grain of salt. You can run it through whatever filter or lens you want to. But as somebody that sat in the room for two days, I'm going to just kind of unpack that. And I think we'll start doing that going forward on commission meetings that I'm able to make. And by the way, <laughs> I definitely asked if in the future they could schedule that December commission meeting outside of uh, duck season because they always put it right after the opening split. And it's always cost me a couple days if I'm going to make it. So that's one of the hardest ones. Anyway, last week, let's see, that would have been October, I think, 6th and 7th. The seventh being my sister's birthday. Happy birthday to my sister. Uh, October 6th and 7th, St. Augustine, Florida. Thank you to Fletcher Hallett, double the L's, double the T's. Hallett for all your insurance needs, 904-315-5812 for allowing me a very comfortable bed to sleep in. Um, I hope my snoring did not keep them awake all night, but uh, really nice to be able to have a place to crash. It didn't cost me any money. And they fed me dinner and super awesome people. So please call Fletcher. I'm not going to sing the song. I'm not going to penalize you with that. But 904-315-5812. Went to St. Augustine to attend the FWC commissioners meeting. And I commented, I think, on five items. And those are the ones I'm going to kind of stick to. um, Simply because those are the ones I was in the room for. Like there was a discussion on sharks. If you want to know what happened in the discussion on sharks, you would have to go like watch it on the Florida channel or I don't know, read the cliff notes from somebody else because I wasn't in the room for that. I was out in the hall having a meeting. So here's, here's my advice. Since, since I left St. Augustine on whatever day that was Thursday, was it Thursday? Since I left St. Augustine on Thursday, I have seen so much misinformation floating around. And there's disinformation, which is like intentionally bad. And there's misinformation, which is like not intentionally bad. And it's amazing to me how people just grab. It's a thing I've talked about before. Marshall McLuhan, the headline is the story. The the medium is the message. It's amazing to me how many people just grab the headline and run with it as though it's the gospel. And so I'm going to walk through. I've got the agenda open here in front of me and just going to walk through uh, some of the things that I, I paid close attention to, was involved in the discussion with a little bit and give you my thoughts on it and then go from there and you guys can share this with people if you see misinformation out there or not or you know delete it or listen to it or i don't care like i i'm here for it i'm I'm laid back i this is travis without a microphone stand so the first item that i wanted to talk about was the draft rule for reopening the goliath grouper season harvest whatever you want to call it so um the one thing I'm going off memory. I don't have this. I don't have this in front of me, but I believe that the direction was for staff to come back with a proposed final rule that allowed for the harvest of 200 Goliath grouper uh, on the Atlantic side. It would be closed from Martin County all the way down to the keys through the keys, uh, not on the Gulf side in the keys, but on the Atlantic side in the keys. Uh, only 50 Goliaths could be taken out of ENP in Everglades national park. Beyond that, uh, they could be taken anywhere in state waters or I don't know how that works. State, federal waters. Anyway, 200 could be taken. 
and you could buy a, so you had to play, pay $10 for a tag to enter the quota, enter the lottery. And if you get drawn, it's $500 and there's a slot, I think it's 24 to 36 inches. Don't quote me on that. Maybe it's 24 to 39. The slot seemed kind of small to me. Anyway, so staff presented this rule and when they presented the rule, it was Palm Beach County, south to the Keys. Um, and a ton of folks showed up from the dive community. I think there were, ended up being 22 speakers for this. A ton of people showed up from the dive community in Southeast Florida. And they've always been pushed back on this rule. They've always pushed back on this rule because when they dive on their wrecks, it's an economic driver for them that people can go see Warren, the, the polite Goliath grouper that they get to see on every trip. So it's a charismatic megafauna type discussion, so much so that one of the dive operators called it a charismatic megafauna. Uh, This is a conversation that we have had ad nauseum on this podcast about game animals in this country. But uh, all of those folks, they were very concerned about people like crossing the line, poaching, whatever. Travis's opinion, part one. I get that those are concerns. Like there was a lot of concern about dissenting devices not being used on grouper and them ending up dead and not taken. And how was that going to work? And I'm, I'm sitting here thinking, and I'm, I'm not an East coast guy. I'm a West coast guy, but I'm sitting here thinking, I, I just, I don't buy that. If there's that much poaching and killing of Goliaths going on already, why isn't some kind of law enforcement taking place? And that's a separate discussion from the discussion around whether or not the fishery could handle the harvest of 200 Goliaths in the state. Um, so I'm not, I'm not invalidating their concerns, but I am saying different conversation. One's an enforcement conversation. The other is a rule around harvest. And when you start to bring that into the conversation around harvest, you start to lose your slide in it. And I, I don't, I don't get that. It's almost like, it's not exactly a straw man argument, but it's getting there. So, uh, two, 200 grouper could be taken statewide. I spoke in favor of this rule. Um, I did and you'll have to forgive me because I haven't gone back and listened to my comments, but I'm pretty sure. Well, I know for a fact, I questioned the $500 fee. Um, and I followed CCA's lead on that. Uh, I talked to Trip Ackman from CCA a little bit about it. And $500 just seems high to me, particularly for a fish that's in a slot. Um, so I, I don't know this to be true, but I kind of suspect that the slot was required to get the rule passed initially. And once we get that harvest going, you may be able to see a change to that in the future. But I also question very, very much the the $500 fee. Um, where is that going? And I believe, it, did I say this out loud already? If there's a thing you're concerned about or want to understand, you can go watch these discussions. Like they're free on the Florida channel. So you can go download the video and, or I'm sorry, go stream the video and watch every one of these things that got unpacked right there on the Florida channel. And you can hear all the discussion I'm telling you about through, through my lens. Cause I may have misheard something. I may have misunderstood something. Who knows? Anyway. Um, so I pushed back on the $500 fee. I want to say that Jessica McCauley, the, the director of Marine fisheries, when she spoke on it said that, um, 150 to $200 has to actually go to like the management of the tags. So, uh, I think it was commissioner soul, who pushed back and said, yeah, we just, we don't want to be making money on this. We want to be breaking even, even on this. And that's the thing that I think the agency gets dinged for a lot. And I really appreciated them, them all being very clear on that. And Jessica nodded her head and absolutely agreed with that. And so I feel like staff really wanted to do a good job with this. Um, so the divers were very concerned about the line being Palm beach County. Uh, 
the commission directed staff to change the rule to actually include Martin County as well as almost like a buffer to make sure that there was no overlap. So I really think this will come back and pass at either the December or March commission meeting. They're going to run the season one year and then come back for an assessment to see how it went and go from there. So I'm happy about that. I'm happy to see a species that we're looking. One of the terms that staff continued to use throughout the whole discussion was minimal impact. Like this isn't going to suddenly endanger the Goliath grouper. This isn't going to ruin the Goliath grouper. And this is going to be a theme that you hear me hit on a couple of times on this episode. No one at FWC wants to do anything to damage the wildlife resources that they love, that they went to school for, that they got a job making less money, you know, than they could have in any other field. They don't want to damage those resources. Their goal is not to do anything to upset those or damage those. They're not getting paid by mullet fishermen or something else to say, oh my gosh, the glass are eating all our mullet. You guys got to, you guys got to get rid of some of them. There's not like a conspiracy out there behind it. I think that's one of the things that bugs me the most in all these conversations. There's always a conspiracy behind it. The second item on the agenda was a staff report on the redfish fishery stock. Again, going off memory here, so you'd have to check me on these numbers. I don't have them directly in front of me, but targeted escapement or escapement for a redfish means that it grows out of the slot. So essentially it's moved into a breeder class fish. Targeted escapement rate for sustainability of the population is 20%. FWC, like in 2005 or six, it was several years back, actually changed their target from 30% to 40% to like buffer it even more. So for sustainability, you need 20%. Target is 40%. In Southwest Florida, the escapement rate is 70%. So it's, it's three and a half times what you need for sustainability. It's almost double what you need for, uh, uh, that almost double what is the targeted rate. And there's a lot of pushback online right now, uh, particularly from the South or from the West coast, Florida guides group. And they keep saying yes, but there was a huge fish kill in July and I'm not marginalized that there was a huge fish kill in July, but there was also a ramp up in fish population prior to July. Like it had been closed for three years. So our escapement rate was through the roof. It's, it's the highest of anywhere in the state by a long shot in that region. Now I'm not saying I'm not a fisheries expert. I am saying that I'm not a fisheries expert, but I also think sometimes we get kind of full of ourselves a little bit as guides. And I'm a guide. I'm not a full-time fishing guide right now. I'm I'm more focused on waterfowl. But as a guide, you tend to believe what you see out on the water every day. And so I recognize how you can get it in your head that this fishery has been damaged when you see all these dead fish and then you have some rough days. But what you also don't hear from is there's there's a subsection of the guide community that I'm watching on social media post lots of redfish days, like day after day after day, just hammering those fisheries. And it's catch and release, and I'm fine with that, and I'm fine with catch and keep, and I'm, I'm fine with all of the things. What I'm not fine with is allowing popular opinion to drive the resource management. And I may be wrong about this, but in, in, in Travis's math, public trust doctrine means that they represent all of us. Like, like hunters are the minority in the state of Florida. So if we went to a pu- popular opinion or a public opinion on whether or not we should hunt doves, let's say, that would get voted down. Like most people would say, no, you shouldn't. Most people say, no, you shouldn't hunt ducks. Most people say, no, you shouldn't have deer. 
it would it would be an opportunity to, to shut that stuff down. So I, I really struggle with uh, kind of the, I call it the mom mentality. I don't know if that's fair in this case. I, I tend to think it's more of the, I'm going to get myself in trouble here, but I'm going to call it the uninformed mentality because what I saw, and this is, this is definitely where I'm getting myself in trouble. What I saw was there was an agenda published three weeks before the meeting. There was a meeting held commission meeting. And this item was on the meeting and no one showed up to speak on it. The only people that spoke on it were, were CCA Florida, myself, Bill George, a radio host from the Tampa area. And a gentleman who wants actually commercial harvest for redfish whenever the stock numbers reach whatever sustainability number. I, I didn't pay a whole lot of attention to his comments after he started talking about commercial harvest for redfish because that's not something I'm in, in line for. But uh, anyway, where are all the outcry guys that care so much about the resource that they are losing their mind right now over this reopening? Why weren't any of them in St. Augustine on Wednesday? And I get it. The pushback I'll get, I'll get messages about this that will say, yeah, well, we had to run charters because that's our business. That's how we feed our family, blah, 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 blah. To which I would say, but if you're that concerned about this fish and this fish is, it provides a resource for you to be able to feed your family every day because you go catch it, wouldn't it be in your best interest to either be a member of an organization like CCA that shows up every day and have them represent your your beliefs or, or your, 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 uh, your organizations, but I, I don't know. I don't know how that works. Or wouldn't it make sense for you to be there personally to speak on it? Because that's the thing that kind of gets me is you, you've got a chance to be in the room where these discussions happen and be in front of these commissioners and be in front of the executive director and be in front of staff and have these really hard conversations, but you're not there. So where the hell are you? And I don't ask that rhetorically. I ask that kind of, kind of seriously, like, man, we show up all the time for stuff that we care about. And if the science is leading that this fishery can be reopened, why wouldn't you reopen it? And if you're going to freak out so bad about that, why wouldn't you be there to fight against the reopening? Unless this is just kind of a reactionary emotional thing. And it I've said this before too. And sorry if you have kids in the car, I'm just going to be kind of rough this episode, but FWC is always in a damned if you do, damned if you don't resource constraint situation, like spraying number one issue, right? That that's what comes up all the time. Who who do they have who do they have to contend with? Duck hunters, speck fishermen, bass fishermen, pleasure boaters, jet skiers, water skiers, snowbirds, uh, alligator hunters, um, the Army Corps of Engineers, the water management districts. <laughs> Uh, you, you, you've got this long bird watchers. You've got this long list of things that they have to contend with from a stakeholder standpoint. And then that's not even getting into what is the right ecological decision to make for the resource, which is going to be kind of the thing that most of these guys and gals want to filter their stuff through. Cause that's the resource that they love. So I just, I really struggle with when we come in as stakeholders and think we know better than them. And I've been guilty of this. I'm not talking down to anyone. I've been that guy. So this is me talking to Travis just as much as it's me talking to anybody else. Although on Redfish, I'm talking to other people more, but I've been that guy in that room quite a bit. And so I just, I struggle with kind of this distrust we have at the age of the agency, 
particularly when if you talk about conservation and the conservation model, conservation doesn't exist without the government. And I'm sorry, I know that's going to be super unpopular with a subset of our listeners, but conservation can't happen without the government's involvement. Conservation easements, land conservation. If we left it up to private entities only to handle conservation, yes, there would be some. I don't want to marginalize that. But by and large, conservation exists in this company because in this country because of government involvement. The North American conservation model, we talk about that all the time. We talk about state lands like your state parks, your district lands, your your federal lands. We talk about the BLM. We'll talk about national forests and preserves. We talk about WMAs. Like it takes all of this working together to make conservation work in in this state, in this country. And you add in private landowners where you're able to put WRP or, or NACA or um, or, or WERDA or any, any of the, the, the easements or, or grants that you're able to put on the property to ensure that you can get rid of some of the conservation or you can ensure that conservation takes place on that land in perpetuity. It doesn't exist without government involvement. So while we have this distrust of government and everyone wants to politicize everything that has anything to do with government, Without the government, we don't have conservation. I feel pretty strongly in saying that statement. And like I said, I know that's going to go over like a lead balloon, but it kind of is what it is. Back to Redfish, if you're upset about it, they're having a ton of workshops around the state beginning the day this airs, the 12th. Uh, They're having, I think some days they're having three and they're doing these for two weeks. And I'm going to give you guys some tips on how I think this should work. Again, one dude's opinion, but I think there are opportunities from redfish or game fish management to be able to say, hey, we want some habitat controls in place for making rules around this fishery. In other words, we will have redfish open as long as the, I don't know, red tide measured levels, which FWC keeps track of, as long as those measured levels are under X. And I, I'm not I'm not advocating for that as a solution. I'm just giving that as kind of an example. Um, As long as the nitrogen load testing at various spots within this resource management area, let's say Tampa Bay or Charlotte Harbor, as long as the nitrogen load is below this level, harvest is acceptable. And then you still have the executive order to avail yourself of. But the executive order, this is something that gets truncated a lot. The executive order is not rulemaking. So it was closed under an executive order, which means in this case, Director Sutton or his his uh, designee who may be Dr. Eason, the, the deputy director of FWC, they basically signed an executive order and say, hey, we are closing this fishery because of X. And in this case, it was an acute red tide or the Piney Point spill or whatever it was. Those are not meant to be the new rule. Those are not meant to just exist forever until we feel better about it. And and that's kind of where I'm struggling with the guide community that I'm seeing pushback on is they want science to always be to today. So I, I want to know exactly how many redfish are in Tampa Bay. I want to know exactly how many died. I want to know how many exactly how many are alive. I want to know exactly how many are going to be bred next year and how many babies they're going to have. And now I want to know how many of those are going to survive. And then once you tell me all that, I'll tell you if it's okay to open the fishery or not. And guys, that's just not realistic. And that's kind of what it feels like. And I'm generalizing when I say the guy community because I know not everyone feels this way, but that's kind of what it feels like to me. And tongue in cheek, but not really. I'm kind of pushing back saying, well, well, if you're that serious and you're that worried about the redfish, why not just close the whole Tampa Bay and say no fishing in it? 
And I recognize I would put some people out of business and that sucks. And I'm not advocating for that at all. But isn't that kind of like there, there's no rhyme or reason to what you're you're saying. So why not go the other way on it? If you're that concerned, like, oh, my God, if any redfish dies, it's going to be the end of the, the species. Well, dude, why are you out there catching and releasing them? Because there's some level of mortality rate. And as a guide, you're on the water six, seven days a week catching 20 of them at a time. The mortality rate on those 140 you touch in a week is going to be higher than one guy going out on a Saturday keeping a redfish with his kid. I just think that's a conversation that people don't like to have. And I think in general, in the fishing community, anytime you disagree or have a different opinion, it gets shouted down pretty quickly. I I think the hunting community is more accepting of that than the fishing community is. But that is my take on redfish. Uh, Like I said, I stepped out in the hall for sharks. Just it, it didn't grab me. Um, I will tell you that I'm not even sure what I heard. It would be worth going back and watching, but the South Atlantic fishery management council report, man, that's, that's a little bit crazy. Like, like it was one of those scenarios where I'm not, I'm not an offshore fisherman and that's a little bit of foreign language to me, but it felt a little bit to me like, like staff couldn't believe what they were saying to the commissioners and commissioners couldn't believe what they were hearing. And the way that works is FWC can make, I'm going to get this directionally right. FWC makes rules, but they're reflective of what the feds recommend, almost kind of like waterfowl works. So FWC can still make state rules for those fisheries, but they're not, they're not completely in charge of them. They kind of have to do it at the, at the direction of the, the fisheries councils. So what happened here is they, they, they started talking about bottom fishing and red snapper numbers and grouper numbers. And man, I I lost track of what was going on there. But like I said, if you fish offshore on the Atlantic side, it's worth going and finding this to be at the end of the first day of, of the sixth and listening to it. Cause it sounded to me at some point, like it was like, Dude, is bottom fishing or offshore bottom fishing in trouble on the Atlantic side based off direction from the council? And it kind of seemed like no one wanted to ask that question that bluntly, but that's where everyone was headed. And everyone seemed a little bit in disbelief. And I'm talking staff and the commissioner seemed a little bit in disbelief of it. So if that's a thing to support to you, I recommend going and find that. Uh, I'll put a link to uh, the Florida channel on on the show notes. So if you want to go listen to this stuff or find this stuff, you can. May have to t- do some fast forwarding, but they're, they're pretty good about marketing it where, where you can go. Day two, uh, there was a rule on aquaculture, sale of largemouth bass for food. If that sounds familiar to you, it's because we have talked about it on the podcast before. Uh, we were ahead of the game on this a little bit, and we pushed for um, – Representative Trabolsi, Dana Trabolsi, to include language that made sure that northern largemouth bass were not allowed to be aquaculture in the state of Florida, but that only Floridana strain were. That way, if there was some kind of a, I don't know, hurricane or a levee breach or something, we weren't loose, turning loose some uh, non-indigenous species, having a Burmese python type situation in Florida because of uh, bass and bass aquaculture. I don't like this rule at all. But again, let me let me be very clear here. The agency has to write rules that reflect legislation that may have been made. So this was not that the agency wanted to create these rules. The agency had to adopt some of their rules because some of their rules now conflicted with legislation. So um, 
but the commission this was the most uh i'll say candidly the most disenchanted part of the day because it felt like the commissioners were a little put off they were not familiar with the rule um they did not know that or i'm sorry they were not familiar with the the bill that passed uh representative Tripolsi's, and then there was a senate um companion bill that also passed so they were i think a little bit irritated that they hadn't been up to speed but i think they were mad at themselves they did they did not come across as mad at, at staff necessarily a, a little bit they did but for the most part i think they were more mad at themselves that sorry as you may have as you may have heard my uh grill got fixed and that was my timer for my grill so i'm actually using the green mountain but i can't talk about that until emily and nate get back so they can make fun of me anyway the aquaculture for largemouth bass, there was just some contentious discussion around that. If you're a bass fisherman, if you're if you're interested in that topic, it's worth going back to look. I don't think there's really anything FWC can do there. I think this is more of a, it's done. And I, and I think this was a rule that that legislation has kind of been floating around out there for a long time. No one ever thought it would pass, and suddenly it did pass. And so, you know, it, it's kind of one of those better bads. Emily calls them when you're when you're picking your, your foods and stuff. It was a thing. It was a hill I wasn't going to die on. The rule was going to pass. We had to figure out some way we could get some concessions in there. And I thought uh, doing the Floridana species exception was a good way to do it. If you left this up to Travis, if, if Travis was the grand poobah of all things, I would have said, heck no, you're not aquaculturing largemouth bass. I don't want you selling bass because I think there's some concerns in my mind around black markets and what that gets into and opening it up and, and everything else. But seems like a relatively small market right now and it seems like a relatively small risk right now so it just was more one of those things that felt off or felt wrong so i don't recommend going back and look listening to that discussion unless you're just looking for some time to kill and want to be all the way caught up on everything um commented on i just commented in support of the managed shooting ranges if you're interested in this kind of stuff and we talk about hunting and recruitment in r3 a lot it's worth going and looking at the presentation that FWC's HGM hunting game management staff put together. Um, Bill Klein is the guy that's kind of over the shooting ranges and the, and the hunt camps and really interesting demographic stuff on there. Particularly as you look at diversity and inclusion in hunting and you look at the growth in shooting sports nationally, there was some data there that comes from national shooting sports foundation, really, really, really interesting stuff. So it's worth going and at least scrolling those slides. If you want to see some interesting stuff that might, might be topical it might come up in conversation someday if you're if you're really into that stuff i am and i will go screen grab those slides because they were very useful i thought uh the last section um is public items that were not on the agenda that's where you could comment basically on anything and everything um the one thing that has kind of been bubbling around and you've seen it in our facebook group if you pay attention you've seen it on social media if you're in any of the birding groups or the environmental groups but there's a lot of talk recently about changing the state bird to the scrub jay. Um, there is a state representative. I think he's a representative. Maybe he's a senator. Brandis is his name. He has introduced a bill to remove the mockingbird as a state bird, but not replace it. So you keep seeing his name getting tossed around as he wants the scrub jay as a state bird. That's not the way that bill is worded. The, the bill is worded around he wants to basically rescind the order making the mockingbird the state bird. The other side of that is, uh, I think it's Killebrew, and he's not my representative, but he's the district over for me, but he lives in Winter Haven. Um, Sam Killebrew has introduced a bill as well to replace the Mockingbird 
with the scrub jay. And so um, that's got some obvious traction in the environmental groups. I support that. I am all for making the scrub jay. I think one of the pushbacks you hear a lot is, well, developers aren't going to like that because then it's going to get harder to get development done. I don't know if you guys have looked around, but making it a little harder for development to get done would not be the worst thing in the history of the world as far as Florida is concerned. Um, anyway, FWC brought this up. It was not an agenda item, but uh, Chairman Barreto asked to have a discussion on it. So there was a minor discussion on it, and they brought it up, talked about it. I'm still not quite clear on what happened there. It looked to me like they s- voted in support of both bills, both the recension of the Mockingbird and the support of the replacement with the Scrub Jay. I'm not 100% sure that's right because I asked for clarification in my public comments. I said, hey, I was, I was glad to hear you guys talk about that, but I'd like to do some clarification on this. And I never heard if there was clarification, never saw an update, a press release, anything else. Um, without sticking my head too far into the lion's mouth. I will tell you, you will see some articles out there that say the NRA is opposed to the scrub jay as the state bird. Don't believe that's true. The NRA's lobbyist, Marion Hammer, who is uh, someone that's been a, a big deal in the gun industry for a long time, is adamantly opposed to the scrub jay. It has been for a long time. You can go Google that, read about that stuff. But she has always been opposed to the scrub jay. And so... I think sometimes her position gets lumped into the NRA's position, and I don't think that's necessarily true in this case. I'm not I'm not def- well. I am defending the NRA. I'm not an NRA die on the hill guy, but at the same time, you call a spade a spade. So, <laughs> think that catches everybody up to speed on the Scrub Jay conversation. Um, I think that's everything. That, oh, the other thing that I discussed in there, and I full disclosure with you guys, is spraying is always a hot topic always a hot topic you know that so i made sure in my public comments that i gave three sides of spraying one um i praise the commission in his opening remarks uh director sutton always gives what's called a director's report in the opening of day one and it's basically like filling the commission in on the highlights from the last three months and if you remember back in i think april ish we interviewed mike elfenbein and we talked about the aquaculture project which is a nutrient removal project done in conjunction with invasive plant management from FWC. The army Corps was on board with it. I can't remember if DEP is still on board with it or not, or what's going on there. But at the time I think they were anyway, it's this really cool project that's going to lead to hopefully some nutrient removal at a lower cost uh, and maybe be able to use it for farms to grow hay, export it. It's, it's better than anything else we've seen in a long time. And so it's exciting when you see that stuff. And for an agency that gets kind of roasted for every time they turn around and spray anything, um, I appreciated Director Sutton talking about that because it's a step in the right direction. And, and it's really hard to always defend the agency when you don't have anything to show them, even though you know that kind of stuff's going on. That's just been, it's taken a long time to get through like the, the bid process and everything else. So we've been watching that closely because we've, we've known those guys and, and been in those conversations for a long time, but really excited that that's now under, I think it's under contract. So we should start seeing that rolling forward. Um, I also mentioned the Apopka situation, how hard I recognize that Apopka is can't remember how big Apopka is, but it's got a substantial explosion of hydrilla on it. And what we're looking at is I think they want to treat 2000 acres of hydrilla as a waterfowl hunter, let me be very clear. I don't want anyone to ever treat hydrilla anywhere. I would like every lake in the state, every water body in the state to be blanketed out with topped out hydrilla. 
However, as I mentioned earlier, I recognize the nuance of the situation and it's pretty complicated. There's a lot of stakeholders involved. And when you get into Lake Apopka, you got a long history of stakeholders involved there, including the friends of Lake Apopka and homeowners. And it it gets really uh, sticky really fast. So I spoke a little bit about the Apopka situation and that I appreciate what staff's trying to do there. And the last thing I kind of made in my public comments was that there is a nameless lake. And I'm not going to tell you guys the name of the lake either because I know you knuckleheads will show up on it. But there's a nameless lake um, that we used to band wood ducks on and have not caught wood ducks on it in years. Probably four years since we caught a I, – I think we catch like one a year. Um, but it just hasn't been worth hunting. It's just been really a down lake. And this year we caught a ton of wood ducks on it. And it's got hydrilla on it. And so I went to IPM and was like, hey, are you guys planning to treat this? And they're like, actually, yeah, we're planning to treat it very, very soon. And I was like, look, is there any way you could not kill the spatter dock? Because wood ducks don't really care about hydrilla. I'm sure they'll eat it if it's conveniently located, but they really care about spatter dock. And to IPM's credit, they went and actually worked with the county where this lake is located and changed the treatment plan so that it wouldn't damage the spatter dock. And one of the one of the chemicals, herbicides they use, I can't remember which one, is, if it's aquathol or endothol um, or persilicor, when they use it, it kills the top of the spatter dock but not the plant so the plant will come back but it won't come back six eight ten weeks so for from a duck season standpoint that was, that would suck like you you kill their food source those birds are going to move off and we have another wasted lake and to ipm's credit because we love to dance on them in the waterfowl community a lot they changed their treatment they said no we'll use a different herbicide there that won't touch the spatter dock and then out in the open lake where the hydrilla is really thick and really bad we'll use a different herbicide there now, I will be very candid and say, I tried to say, why don't you use no herbicides and just let the hydrilla go nuts? They did not bite on that, but I 100% tried it. Anyway, those are the three examples I kind of gave in my in my public comments because I just wanted them to recognize that, hey, we love to stand up here and tell you guys when you're doing wrong, but sometimes we should tell you when you're doing right. And sometimes we recognize that it's nuanced and hard, which is a thing that we push all the time. That is my recap of the FWC commission meeting calling this the room where it happened because I think it's fun to do a Hamilton reference there. And um, man, it'd be cool if I could put the music behind this, but I'm pretty sure Lin-Manuel Miranda would sue my tail off if I did that. Hope you guys have all had a great week. Hope you guys are enjoying the conversations. I told you they have a little bit of a different feel this season, uh, but I hope you guys are enjoying them all. We've got a really special one coming. The one I've got scheduled for this week is Landon Blankenship, official taxidermist of the show. So we interviewed Landon several years ago, like the first 10 or 12 episodes we did and the sound was so bad but it was such a good interview so went back and revisited Landon and talked through a lot of that stuff again like how taxidermy works and I think you guys will enjoy that conversation so looking forward to seeing everybody Thursday as always thank you so much for listening thank you so much for supporting us be it through Patreon be it through heck man just sharing the show sending it sharing it to groups is a great way to share it because it gets it in front of other audiences Um, and I tend to get kicked out of groups a lot so we appreciate each and every one of you thank you so much for all you do and in honor of Nate y'all stay woke